Well, it's so good to be back up here again. Um, it's not easy talking into a phone in an empty room and trying to be natural. So even though we're not back to normal, it's still great. So on Thursday, many of us listened as Nicola Sturgeon gave her regular update on the current position with the coronavirus. There were a couple of lines that stood out to me. She said, I am aware that the announcements that I have made so far are hard for people to hear. After six long, hard months, we are still asking the public to make a lot of difficult sacrifices. I know that making these choices gets harder and much more tiresome as time passes. Here she's expressing her frustration and the frustration of the nation at how long all of this is lasting. How long we are having to endure these challenges and these restrictions. Things that were easy to do for the first few weeks become more and more tiresome. Patience and endurance are required. And I think that's very much the idea that we've been looking at over the last few weeks in Hebrews. We've, there's been a repeated call to keep going, to hold on in there, and repeated reminders of why it is all worthwhile. Tonight I want to start with a bit of a refresher of the three big pictures that we've looked at in the last couple of chapters. Then in the first few verses of our passage, we'll see three ways that we should live in light of this. And then at the end of the passage, we see three ways of reacting towards God. So three pictures, three ways to live, three reactions to God. Nine points to get through in half an hour. So we better get in there. I think it's important for us to set tonight's passage in the context. If we are to not misunderstand some of the things that are said, we need to see the links with what has gone before. Back in chapter 11 and into the beginning of chapter 12, we saw the picture of a great cloud of witnesses, of the people who have gone before us, the people who can testify to God's faithfulness, and a repeated feature throughout this chapter is how they refused to accept the best that this world could offer to them because they had a far greater hope. They were willing to endure rejection, ridicule, and even death because they knew that God was faithful to his promises. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, we saw this image of a race. We were encouraged to get rid of the things that were holding us back. We were encouraged to run with endurance. To keep running despite how long and hard the race is. And we were encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus. Who had run the race before us as our example. But also had opened up the way for us. And ultimately 
is the goal of the race. And then last week, we continued in chapter 12 with the picture of a loving father disciplining his son. We were reminded that we do not suffer because God does not love us and does not care for us. But rather we suffer because he loves us so much that he's unwilling to leave us as we are, but is working in us to transform us, to make us who we are meant to be. We were encouraged to endure because suffering does not last forever. And God is working for our good. All of these pictures are about motivating us for the long haul. Motivating us so that we will endure trials and difficulties. So that we will keep going because we have such a great hope. As we were reminded this morning, the key to living faithfully in the present is thinking clearly about the future. So as we turn to our passage, to verse 12, we see the first of the three ways of how we should live. We're told, therefore, because of, in light of these things that you have just heard about, in light of these big pictures, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. This might be seen as insensitive. Just try harder. Just do better. If it wasn't for the context. Because we're told to do all of this in light of the encouragement to endure. We're told to do it in light of being reminded that the hardship that we are going through is for our benefit. And so we're told, don't give up. Gather what little strength you have together and push on another step. And then another. As Ian White used to sing, you've got to keep on, keep on, keeping on. And that's why we were reminded back in chapter 10 to spur one another on. One of our directors at work, a Christian who goes to Carubbers, shared something with me during the week. He's been working with a business coach, for better or worse, who was encouraging him to start the day with self-affirmation statements. And so he shared with me the list that he has pulled together based off Ephesians 1. God is my father. I was chosen to be his before God said, let there be light. I am holy and blameless in his sight. God's blessings are a result of his love for me. And so on. I think he had 16 points in total. Not quite sure that that's what the coach was thinking of. But if we intend to stand, if we intend to run, we must remind ourselves and each other again and again of these truths. But secondly, we're called in verse 13 to make level paths for our feet. This seems to be a quote from Proverbs 4, 26, which gets translated in quite a wide variety of ways, but commonly something along the lines of give careful thought or ponder 
the path of your feet. We're being called here to think about our path, to think about our choices, the way that we choose to live, and to choose to walk a careful path. It would be foolish for us to choose to walk on a precarious, icy path on the edge of a precipice. Or foolish for us to wander through a dark alley in the middle of the night alone. But I think what's very significant is the second half of the verse, where we're given the reason why. So that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. These are slightly confusing words, but I think this is basically saying, because you are weak and broken and hurting, we must recognize that while still in this life, we are weak. It would not be sensible for us to attempt a marathon with our leg in plaster, or to climb a Monroe with blistered feet. But what does this mean for us in practice? I don't know. Maybe it means that we're careful to choose to live where there is a good church nearby. Maybe it means that we're careful not to accept a promotion that will consume all our time and energy. Maybe it means being careful how we spend our leisure time and who we spend it with. Being careful about what books, films or other media we choose to fill our minds with. But we have to be careful about this. Yes, we are called to be careful about the choices we make, to recognise our weakness and to flee temptation rather than flirt with it. But the easy answer is to shut ourselves off from everything in the world around us and all the challenges that that brings. To live lives of splendid monastic isolation. At many times in the history of the church, that has been seen as the right thing to do. I remember once several years ago, through in room three, Paul Johnson leading a discussion on the subject of the Christian and entertainment. And he said that for him growing up, it was simple. The answer was no. And for many, that was the simple answer. The cinema, the pub, the stadium were all off limits. The TV was not allowed in the house, and the only reading material was the Bible, Christian commentaries and biographies. And there is most definitely a certain wisdom in that path. And for some of you, that may be the path that you choose to follow. Because many of these things are seductive. They can lead us astray in our thoughts and ultimately in our actions. But yet Jesus prays in the upper room saying, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He calls us to not hide our light 
and our bow. When we recently studied Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, one thing that was really clear to me was how much he knew and understood the cultures he was speaking to. He quoted their poets. He responded to their philosophers. I certainly know that the closest I ever get to deep, meaningful conversations with my work colleagues is in the pub. In that environment, they are relaxed and willing to talk in a way that they wouldn't at any other time. But for some, depending on their particular areas of weakness, that would not be a wise path to take. Which is why we have to be careful here not to try and put rules where scripture is silent. But we must tread carefully and not be foolhardy. And then thirdly, in verse 14, we are told to make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Once again, this seems like an impossible demand. We're being told to strive for something that we know we cannot achieve. With the added threat that if we do not achieve the impossible, we will not see God. If this is all there is, then Christianity is a sick joke. But again, we need to look back at what has gone before. In verses 10 and 11 we read, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Do you see the link? What were the things that God was working in us to achieve? Holiness, righteousness, and peace. And what are the things we are told to make every effort towards? Peace and holiness. We are not being asked to do anything in our own strength. We're being called, yes, to radical transformation in our lives. And how we relate to one another to seek peace. And how we relate to God to seek holiness. But we're not being asked to do it in our own strength. We're being asked to do it in the strength that God will give us as he works in and through us. And so, as we come to the second half of our passage, we see three different reactions that people have towards God. Firstly, in verses 18 to 21, we see a reaction of terror. The picture we're shown here is a Mount Sinai. The Israelites have left Egypt and have camped in the desert at the base of Sinai. And when they're there, God comes down on the mountain to give them the law. And as he reveals his presence on the mountain with clouds and thunder and fire and trumpets, the people see the power and majesty and holiness of God and they are terrified. 
They beg for God not to speak directly to them, but only to speak through Moses. And ever since the fall, that has been the natural reaction to seeing in the presence of God. In the garden, Adam and Eve hid from God. Isaiah cried out, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And Peter said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It's a natural reaction to an almighty, magnificent, perfect, holy God when you know that you are a sinner. It's a reaction which makes you look down on your speedometer when you see a police car behind you. When you immediately see everything that is sloppy about your driving that you have been perfectly happy with the moment before. But this reaction to God is one that leads to legalism. To the sort of religion that is about trying to work to make yourself acceptable to God. To doing hard penance to show your contrition. To striving to do good in the hope that it'll be just enough for God to allow you into heaven. And I think that's the major view that people outside have of God. They think that we believe in an angry and vengeful God and that Christianity is about trying to live a good enough life to somehow appease him. But we're told in verses 22 to 24 of a different way of how we have come to God. We have not come in terror, but instead in awe. Instead of Sinai, the mountain pictured here is Zion. The new Jerusalem, our promised now and not yet home. This also is a mountain where God's glory is displayed in splendor. But instead of fear, it's a place of joy. It's a place of worship and celebration. It's a place where the church is gathered together along with countless angels. When we read of this city in Revelation, it is beautiful. It is glorious. The best the author can do is to use pictures of gold, clear like crystal, of precious stones, perils, rainbows, rivers, perfect proportions, massive dimensions, because an accurate description goes beyond what our language or our minds could possibly comprehend. But that's not really what's amazing about it. What's amazing is that here the dwelling of God is with his people. Gone is all death, mourning, crying and pain. Sin will be no more and neither will the effects and consequences of it. We will be with him and we will be like him for we will see him as he is. And as Job says, how our hearts yearn within us. So many people would look at this and say, ah yes, yes, this is the God of the New Testament. A loving, friendly God. 
Completely different from that nasty, judgmental God of the Old Testament. We want nothing to do with him. But that's not the case. This is the exact same God with the exact same character. Because we're told in verse 23 that we have come to God, the judge of all. So what's the difference? Why the different response? That's what verse 24 tells us. And in fact, all the previous 11 chapters of Hebrews, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We have come to the same God, but we have not come trying to impress him with our own attempts at righteousness. We have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Back in Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed his brother Abel. And God says to him, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What does Abel's blood cry out? Sure, it cries out for vengeance, for justice. It's the cry of the innocent who have been wronged. And this is not a wrong thing to long for. If there is no justice, if evil goes unpunished forever, if there's no reckoning for all the atrocities carried out and all the little hurts and lies and gossip and betrayal, then this world is a very unfair place to live. And the God who rules it cannot claim to be good. Justice must be done. But we know that if justice is done, we are in trouble. So if that cry for justice is so strong, what better word does the blood of Jesus have? Finished. Paid for. Mine. No condemnation. That is why we can approach this holy God with joy. But we must not think that this in any way makes him a less awesome God. He is still the God before whom the living creatures cry out, holy, 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 all day long. He is still the same God. But we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. We have been adopted. And so we can come before him with joy. But there is a third way that we might react to God. Not in terror. Not in awe. But in indifference. If you turn back up to verse 16. We read... See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. There's an amazing contrast that can be drawn between this verse and verse 2. I didn't notice this until I read it in an article, but as soon as you see it, the parallels and the contrast are so striking. 
Back in verse 2, we read of Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. In verse 16, we read of Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance. Each person is identified with a motivation and an action. Jesus is looking ahead beyond the agony and torment of the cross to the joy not just of being back at his father's side in the glories of heaven because that was his from the beginning but for the joy of presenting to his father a redeemed people to present us without fault and with great joy. As one old hymn puts it, he and I in that bright glory one deep joy shall share. Mine to be forever with him, his that I am there. With that glorious vision before him, he endures the excruciating pain of the cross. He endures the horror of my sin and of yours. He endures the agony of separation from his father because the motivation was so glorious and so compelling. And so the difference with Esau's story is shocking. He'd been out in the open country, probably hunting. He comes back starving and exhausted, and he wanted a bowl of Jacob's stew so much that he was willing to sell his inheritance. As the firstborn son, he probably stood to inherit a double portion of all of his father's wealth but he stood to inherit far more than just goods. Because Esau was not just the son of any random nomadic herdsman growing up in Bronze Age Canaan. His father was Isaac. His grandfather was Abraham. And if you remember back, God had made covenants with Abraham and Isaac. God had promised to make them into a great nation to give them descendants that could not be counted. He promised to give them a wonderful land to live in. And more than all of those, he had promised that he would bless them and bless all nations through them. Ultimately, although they could not have imagined it at the time, these promises would lead to the birth of Jesus. But as we read a couple of weeks ago, Looking forward to these promises was what shaped and defined the lives of Abraham and Isaac. These were not promises given to someone in the distant past. Abraham would still have been around when Esau was growing up. He must have heard about these promises countless times. He would have been told, Esau, my son, one day, you will be the head of this family. It will be through you and your children that God will do all these things. I don't know whether he had placed any value on these things before. But at that moment, 
he could only see as far as his present needs and desires. He was so desperate for that bowl of stew. But in comparison with his, with his immediate hunger, which will be gone in a few minutes, he considered the promises of God to be inconsequential. And so he sold his inheritance for a single meal. So why is sexual immorality brought up here? What has it got to do with Esau? It's not something he's particularly renowned for. Why is it being singled out from all other sins? I think the link is that like with Esau, sexual sin is all about what we would be willing to sacrifice for just a few minutes of pleasure. However ecstatic those minutes might be, like Esau, it is about looking only as far as the felt needs of the moment, however overwhelming those needs and desires might be. Failure in this area has been the downfall of so many prominent figures. When they've failed to keep even to the minimal standards of restraint that the society around us would expect. All too often, has been the downfall of prominent figures within the church. It's been the the cause of so many broken relationships, and so many have put it before God. And it's an area where probably most of us struggle, and many of us fall, whether with our minds, our eyes, or our bodies. But it's not just sex. That is just an illustration, a representative example. Elsewhere, Paul talks about those whose God is their stomach and those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Ultimately, it's all about the contrast with the people that we read about back in chapter 11. People who were willing to give up fleeting pleasures for long-term eternal hope. People who have been captured by a vision so grand and compelling that they would give up everything for it. As C.S. Lewis wrote, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And we are far too easily pleased. We continually put our immediate comfort and pleasure above infinitely greater future glory. We fail again and again. But there is hope. As we've seen before, we come to this holy God through the sprinkled blood of Christ. As James would write, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As one modern song puts it, which we will listen to later, what patience would wait as we constantly roam? 
What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Or if your tastes are a little bit older, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Our time is almost done, or probably is. But it would be wrong to avoid verse 17, where we see Esau too late realizing what he has done. I think there are two things that we need to note here. The first is that at no point is there any sign of repentance. At no point does Esau acknowledge that he has done wrong. All he wants is the blessing. He only wants the good that Isaac has to offer without wanting to repair his relationship. The second is that he left it too late. It's only at the end of Isaac's life when the inheritance has already been divided up, that Esau expresses any desire for what he had lost. It seems like there was quite some time in between, possibly decades even, and yet Esau never thought about it until it was too late. Be careful you don't leave it too long. You cannot respond to God with indifference forever. One day you will come before him either in terror or in joy-filled awe because of what Christ has done for you. As verse 15 says, don't miss out on the grace. It is there for the taking. It is free. You can share in this glorious hope. Unlike with Jacob and Esau, there's not just one blessing. There is more than enough for you and for me. And so as we think back to the start and what we have lived through over the last six months, what's going to keep you going for the next six months? Whatever they might bring. What about the next six years? Or the next six decades even. What are you living for? Are you longing for that heavenly city? Are you striving towards it in the strength that God gives? Or are you trying to get there on your own efforts? Can you come to that mountain of God's glory with joy? Because your life is in Christ.